1: Good morning, it's 8.30 on Wednesday, October 25th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a record-high deer population has wildlife officials asking hunters to bag at least two deer this season. Then, the global transition to electric vehicles means the chance for a manufacturing renaissance in the South. You'll hear about that, plus how Mississippi geology helped shape the outcome of a pivotal moment in the civil war this is mississippi edition on mpb think radio The population of white-tailed deer in Mississippi is at a record high, and wildlife experts are asking hunters to bag at least two more this season. William McKinley is the Deer Program Coordinator at the Mississippi Department of Wildlife Fisheries and Parks. He tells our Mike McEwen the state has a long history of managing the deer population. But in 2017, McKinley says warm temperatures and tighter regulations on doe harvesting diminished much of their progress thinning the herd from previous years.
2: In the 2000s and even in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, the average successful hunter was taking over two deer per person. We see those numbers and we see the percent of the population needed to be harvested to keep the population level. Well, in the past several years, those numbers have fallen down to 1.4 to 1.5 Deer per successful hunter. So that tells us hunters are choosing to harvest less deer out there. Uh, So when we bring that in, um, it leaves more deer on the landscape. Now, when we look at big picture numbers and we've got a population estimate, I've studied those quite a bit and it seems that around 21 to 22 percent is the right around the target goal that keeps a deer herd level, meaning we need to harvest around 21 to 22% of the total population estimate annually, and deer will replace that, and there will be just the same number of deer next year. Well, the past few years, that's fell all the way down to 14% of the herd. Our harvest estimates compared to our population estimate now are showing that we're harvesting Round 14 to 15 percent of the population, well below what it would take to keep the population level. Thus, after seeing these numbers and seeing a trend in these numbers, not, not an anomaly but a trend of this happening for a few years, we have started a campaign to try to encourage hunters to take more deer.
1: With a record number of deer in Mississippi, McKinley says they're getting a record number of deer complaints
2: from cities, from towns, from farmers, from drivers, from gardeners, the number of complaints coming in, deer cause a lot of damage. Too many of them now. Deer are incredibly important to our state. Um, They're the number one pursued uh, game species out there. Uh, 93% of the hunters buying a hunting license in Mississippi last year hunted whitetail deer. That's huge. They're generating an estimated uh, an estimate of over one billion dollars to our economy, mm-hmm. and let's just look at venison um If we take the estimated amount of harvest, if we take the pounds of meat that would red meat that would come from the number of deer that we in our estimated harvest a year ago, mm-hmm. that would equal over thirteen million pounds of venison coming into our state. Being harvested on an annual basis in our state, how important is that to Mississippi families? I mean, it's it's the meat on my table. It, it is my 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 family. We we live off of venison. And um, there's those
3: other industries,
2: right? Yeah. So then, you know, there all the industry in the food plot, and the taxidermy uh, aspect, uh, the processors out there. Uh, there's so much money involved in. In whitetail deer in our state. And, you know, we offer, um, I think I calculated the number is 42% of the total year you can harvest a deer legally somewhere in the state of Mississippi. That's huge. I mean, almost half the year we have a deer season open, and we just need to get the word to hunters that we've got a little too much of a good thing right now. And so, for the health of the deer herd, especially the health of the deer herd in a drought like what most of the state is in now, we need to take a few more deer. We need those resources left out there to be distributed amongst fewer deer this year instead of more. We need to bring that total percent of the population above 21 percent. We need to harvest more than 21, 22 percent of that population this year and bring it down a bit. What are
3: the ecological effects of an overpopulated deer population in Mississippi. There's obviously, for the herd itself, there's the competition issue, which you just brought up. Are there any other ecological effects?
2: Sure there are. Uh, Deer are considered a keystone herbivore. Their presence alters a habitat. And we've shown that through putting some exclosure cages up uh, on several uh, areas across the state that exclude deer entirely. And I studied through MSU and watched the, the plant communities change inside versus outside. Uh, so we see you can take several plant species that deer have virtually eliminated from the landscape over the years. We look at a lot of those birds. A lot of those birds nest at, you know, chest high, shoulder high, and down. And deer, w- once overpopulated, are eliminating that all the vegetation in those areas. I've seen it quite dramatic of what they're doing. So small mammals, ground nesting birds depend on cover, Mm -hmm. and deer can, an overpopulation of deer can remove that cover. They can actually remove the seed base of that if left overpopulated for a long period of time.
3: You were saying something earlier about hunters seemingly making a decision to harvest less deer why do you have any data that indicates why that was happening maybe anecdotal evidence you know was it were they too small was it not worth the
2: effort so the evidence there is our hunter numbers as far as our license numbers have held pretty steady for the past few years Mm -hmm. uh so that's a good thing that's a very good thing in a in an atmosphere nationwide where hunter numbers are declining we have held held our own on hunter numbers um i don't have an exact answer of why hunters are choosing to shoot one and a half deer now on average versus two almost two and a half basically we're we're talking about almost a whole deer less um I don't. I don't have an exact answer. I've got some speculations that I'm not even going to go into because it'd just get me into trouble. But uh, uh, so, but I do not have a, a reason that hunters are doing that. Uh, I do know that in the past, when we have asked our hunters and made a push that we need to do something, they have responded, mm-hmm. and uh, they trust their state agency as a whole. And we are we are hunters too. Uh, almost every person on our staff uh, is an avid hunter, and we're managing this, you know, for the benefit of the hunters, which are our customers, but also for our for our kids and grandkids as well. We want to see this resource there available, and we want to see it healthy.
1: William McKinley is the deer program coordinator at the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. Next, the global transition to electric vehicles means the chance for a manufacturing renaissance in the South. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
2: Tune to MPB on Wednesday, November 1st at 7 p.m. for the gubernatorial debate between Republican Governor Tate Reeves and Democratic challenger Brendan Presley. The debate will air live on MPB TV and radio and stream on the MPB website and mobile app. Voters are invited to submit questions by emailing MPBinfo at mpbonline.org by Monday, October 30th. The debate is a partnership between MPB and WAPT-TV. Please tune in on Wednesday, November 1st at 7 p.m.
1: I'm Vipar Fernandez. Former Food Network host Marcela Valladolid's widely popular online classes inspired her new cookbook about making food for family and friends. It was much more than me teaching them enchiladas, chiles rellenos. It was about connection, and that in turn became my biggest motivator in writing and developing these recipes. Next time, here and now.
0: Today at noon on MVB Think Radio.
4: dr jimmy stewart host of the original southern remedy the show where i answer your medical questions subscribe to the podcast by searching for southern remedy on any podcasting app
1: this is mississippi edition on mpb think radio i'm desirée frazier Southern states are betting that electric vehicles will usher in a manufacturing renaissance in the region. Georgia recently promised nearly $2 billion in incentives to convince Hyundai to open an EV plant there. Stephen Basaha, the Gulf States newsroom, reports Southern states are also betting EVs will lead to carloads of good jobs.
0: I'm at this outdoor farmers market in Birmingham. And to my left, we got a bluegrass band singing about a steam-powered airplane. And to my right, an electric car show. I'm in the uh, little smart electric car. Yeah, bright orange. (laughs) Yeah. Shane Campbell is representing the Alabama Clean Fuels Coalition.
4: Convertible, super fun to drive. It's basically a combination of a uh, golf cart
0: and a go-kart. Now, you might not think of pairing EVs in Alabama, but the state's already a big player when it comes to automobile manufacturing. From Toyota to Mercedes, four major automakers have assembly plants here. That's staggering when you think about it. This Alabama has become literally the new Detroit. Foreign automakers have been filling the South with factories for decades. Unions have less of a grip here, and states have been willing to throw in incentives worth hundreds of millions of dollars to win over companies. And now the Biden administration is throwing in its own incentives to get EVs made in America. With Campbell hoping that means made in Alabama. I want those jobs here, you know? I want my friends and co-workers employed so Alabama's full steam ahead on electric. Yeah. One of the people on a mission to make the dream of EV jobs a reality is Michael Oatridge. He's the head of the Alabama Mobility and Power Center at the University of Alabama. And while EVs might be Alabama's future... His vision for them is wrapped in nostalgia.
4: If you think back of all those movies we watch on television where there was that factory town.
3: All yours, Alan.
1: Thanks, Bill.
4: Those cities and those towns were supported by industry. Big
0: EV assembly plants are going to need a lot of smaller support plants located in smaller cities like Selma. Oatridge says bringing EV plants to places like Alabama's Black Belt can provide the investment in good jobs the region lacks.
4: Utilizing this industrial revolution that's going on in the auto industry to really create some social equity among the entire population of the state.
0: Now, as much as Oatridge is a cheerleader for an EV Alabama future, he says it's also important to make sure it's done right. After all, some of the small auto plants Alabama already has have been hit with fines from federal regulators over dangerous work conditions and deaths. Then there's making sure factories don't open up just to close their doors a decade or two from now.
1: We have to
4: say, hey, is that factory long-term viability? Is there new battery technology that will make that obsolete or will that be there forever?
0: Oatridge is optimistic Alabama can pull it off and attract good, long-lasting EV jobs to the state. When it comes to the auto workers already here, feelings are more mixed. One battery plant worker I spoke to was all in on EVs. Others are more concerned, like Morris Mock. He works at a Nissan assembly plant north of Jackson, Mississippi.
2: When it comes to the legacy workers, the workers that have been there for a while, what are you going to do with us?
0: He's asking because Nissan doesn't need someone trained to build engines working on an EV that doesn't have an engine. And this is actually a big motivation for the United Auto Workers strike happening right now. The union is pushing for job security during this global EV transition. And it's worth noting that there's little research showing EVs would mean fewer jobs. In fact, some research suggests that they need more jobs. What we do know is that EVs definitely require different jobs, like for building batteries instead of engines. I I just want to make sure that we are in the uh, receiving end of those new opportunities. Mach says existing workers can do those new jobs with some new training. Only thing we know is how to
3: work and how to build with our hands, and we're damn good at it.
0: Now, experts say the switch over to electric vehicles is going to take a long while, so there's still a lot of time to retrain workers. Meanwhile, the Biden administration's optimistic goal is to have half of all passenger car sales in the U.S. go to EVs by 2030. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Stephen Bissaha.
1: The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public radio stations in Alabama and Louisiana. Coming up, how Mississippi geology helped shape the outcome of a pivotal moment in the civil war this is mississippi edition on mpb think radio
2: find out what home repair projects you can accomplish on fix it 101 at 9 at 10 get help with solving technology problems on everyday tech then get your general health questions answered on the original southern remedy at 11 you can subscribe to the podcast of your favorite locally produced program on any podcasting app After airing, all locally produced MPB Think Radio programs are available as podcasts. Subscribe using any podcasting app.
1: What can you do with the MPB Radio app? Listen live, hear local news, view the schedule, make a contribution, listen to shows on demand, and interact with social media. Get the app for your smartphone now. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Back in 1862, the Siege of Corinth unfolded during the Civil War. Many soldiers from both the Union and Confederate armies fell sick. Wet conditions and poor soil turned an eight-week-long standstill into one of the most deadly campaigns in the Western Front, despite there being no major battles. Our Kobe Vance speaks with Chris Slocum. He's studying the geology of the Civil War and speaking at this week's History is Lunch, which is today at the two Mississippi Museums in Jackson.
4: The Siege of Corinth has a reputation as a really slow campaign um, and also a very sickly campaign. And so I'm going to begin to talk about some of the environmental factors that contributed, I argue, significantly to the illness and disease that was nearly ubiquitous in the federal army during the siege of Corinth. So I took an environmental lens analyzing uh, nature, uh, the the, kind of the material forces that an army encounters, examined illness through that lens. And so I'm doing things like soil and weather and geology um, and how those together – helped produce a situation in which was um, the land especially was ill-suited to sustaining the health of so many soldiers concentrated in a single area. So I'm going to speak about some of those factors that I argue need to be part of the conversation when we think about illness during the Siege of Corinth. I want to back up a little bit and just get some perspective on what period of the war this was in. Uh, can you just help set the scene for What was it like going into the siege? Sure. So this happens in the spring of 1862. I mean, you know, the war is roughly a year old at this point. And this is the first real major campaign in the Western theater west of the Appalachian uh, mountains. So, you know, you obviously have Bull Run that's fought in summer of 61 in Virginia, Wilson's Creek in August of 61. But the Battle of Belmont, Missouri happens in November of 1861, uh, also in Missouri, but right on the Mississippi River. So, this Tennessee River campaign it was the first United States incursion into. You know, the, the rebellious states, the CSA, and, and uh, it's led by, you know, uh, famous Ulysses S. Grant, right? So this is, uh, they, they essentially try to cut the Confederate Western theater in two, um, and they do it by advancing along the Tennessee River. This opens up Nashville. Nashville is abandoned by the Confederates. Middle Tennessee, Western Tennessee, all except kind of the Memphis and Fort Pillow area are abandoned by the Confederates. And uh, they end up having to retreat to northern Alabama, northern Mississippi, and they concentrate at Corinth. And they hope to blunt the federal uh, advance south on the Tennessee River in southern Tennessee. And that's uh, that's what happens at 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 Shiloh, which happens a couple months later in April 1862. As the Federals move further south along the Tennessee River, they camp at Pittsburgh Landing, Tennessee, right near Shiloh Church. And the Confederates who have uh, fallen back and concentrated at Corinth attempt to blunt the Federal advance uh, and destroy Grant's army uh, at Pittsburgh Landing at Shiloh in April of 1862. That fails, and the Confederates go back to Corinth, which is a strategic railroad crossroads. And railroads are everything in the mid 1862. Uh, it's how mid 19th century armies fight wars. If you don't have railroads, you can't move men, you can't move uh, you know, supplies. Uh, it makes every it makes waging war really hard. So, so the railroad crossroads, which is a young railroad crossroads, just having been completed at Corinth, actually the year prior to the war, uh, is a really important strategic point which is why Shiloh happens, which is why then Corinth, after Shiloh, becomes the target of the federal army. There's no major battle that takes place during the Siege of Corinth. There's a bunch of really small skirmishes and fights. There's, uh, I guess, a small battle at Farmington on May 9th. Uh, But the casualties from disease and disability uh, rival the casualties from battle at Shiloh just a few weeks previous. So uh, it's always really interesting to me kind of um, how you can have a relatively bloodless campaign and have the, roughly the same amount of casualties. They just, they're just they just coming from illness and disease uh, and disability versus, you know, uh, bullet wounds and, uh, and, and unfortunate deaths on the battlefield. So, so this is the first kind of major Western theater campaign uh, in the Civil War. I can imagine with such a drawn-out campaign, you said eight weeks, is that correct? Uh, That's a long time to be in just one place for any standing army. I can not imagine how – and this is where your research comes in. Can you tell how does that continued strain on an ecosystem and continued strain on a supply chain as well uh, factor into the events that played out? You have – you know 175 to 200,000 soldiers concentrated in a really comparatively small area which gosh, for the 1860s, that was a major city. <laughs> All of a sudden, overnight, you've got uh, you know uh, 175,000 plus bodies in one area needing to be fed uh, and surviving as best they can. Um, and so it was a major logistical feat to supply both the Confederates in Corinth. They had trouble doing so. Uh, and the Federals at Pittsburgh and Hamburg landings uh, just across the state line in Tennessee, and they had a difficult time doing so. So The reason why uh, it took so long for Halleck to get ready for the campaign after Shiloh was because he had to organize uh, and supply his men. He had a tough time doing that. What I argue is that that was, it was a really, really tough time to be a soldier in Alex's army. Uh, medicines were low or non-existent. Tents were either damaged from the battle or non-existent. Those those two, three weeks after Shiloh were really brutal times. Um, they, they, and it was raining uh, about two-thirds, three-quarters of the time. And so food was low, medicines low, shelters low, exertions high. Um, and that does things to your body after a while and, and – One of my kind of thrusts of my argument is that that was made worse by the particular soil conditions. Um, Drainage off the landscape was really low. Um, They were disadvantageous material conditions. And that's that's kind of my uh, angle on disease is to plumb the soil science and to uh, later on in the siege look at the geology of the campaign itself and how that limited the availability of clean water.
1: Chris Locum is studying the geology of the Civil War and speaking at this week's History is Lunch today at the two Mississippi museums in Jackson, and that's at noon. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.